we're going to open our Bibles today. We're going to use them. We're going to put them to good use. I believe the Lord's going to speak to us through these words, which are just as true now as they ever have been, because this is not the Word of God that He spoke once. This is the Word of God that He is speaking now. It's the living Word of God. It's alive. It's active. It's relevant every day. And so we're going to open our Bibles to the book of Matthew. For those of you that were here on Sunday, we spoke of this new kingdom that we've been made a part of and how, how important it is and how it's our life. Thank you. How it's everything to us now, how this is the only real purpose in life is his purpose. As Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's, that's, that's my point in life. That's why we're here. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. I've said this so often, I'll say it again, but we need to understand Jesus was the one who had more joy than anyone else. Jesus was the one, the Bible says, that was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his brethren, and he was the one who laid down fully his ambition and said, my ambition is to do the will of the Father. So the secret to being satisfied in this life is, as we said earlier, to be satisfied in him, to be satisfied in in who he's made you to be, to be satisfied in all that he is, and say, I'm here for a reason. I've been designed for something. The Bible says that now that we've been reborn, now that we've been regenerated, we've been created in Christ Jesus. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you weren't just created to exist. Now, does that mean that those good works are what make you the son of the child of God? No, because you had to become a child of God in order to be ready for those good works. But you've been created for these good works, and it says they've been prepared beforehand for you to walk into them. So you've been created for something, and something's been created for you. And when you understand that, life starts to click, life starts to make sense, and we are part of an unshakable kingdom. There are collapsing kingdoms all around us. We're in a world that's fading. We're in a world that's retiring, but we are, we are part of a kingdom that will never fade, that will never crumble, that is unshakable, which is awesome. But as I said on Sunday, we have to understand that when your destination, when your goal in life changes, the path you choose to get there changes. Right? Like we said on Sunday, if you're, if you're planning to go to Edmonton, there's, only, there's really one good way to get there, and there's a couple of back ways to get there, but there's really one good way to get there. But if I'm going to Edmonton and you're going to Saskatoon, it's, it's only a matter of time that our paths are going to split. It won't, won't take long for our paths to split. We may all head to Highway 16 together, but at a certain point, we're going to split in opposite directions. So we are in the world. We've been called, and we live with people all around us that that seem to be similar to us and we might have similar interests. But we have a different reason for existence. We have a different purpose in life now that we've been born again. Because we have a different purpose, because we're heading in a different direction, your path will change. Your path will not always line parallel with everyone around you. And as part of that kingdom, as the scripture said, we read on Sunday, Jesus said to his, his disciples, as the two boys, they weren't They weren't boys any other time, but I'm sure they felt like boys when their mom dragged them in front of Jesus and said, let my boys be be the ones that get to sit next to you. And Jesus said, if you want to be great, the one who wants to be great in this kingdom must be the servant to all, must be the slave of all. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. He told them, this is the way to greatness in this kingdom is to serve. Got a different 
different goal, different purpose in life. And as, as you know, uh, the world all around us is seeking to get to the top of the ladder. That's the goal. That's the, that's the point in life is to get to the top. And if you have to step on somebody's poor little head, you got to do that, but you just got to get to the top. And Jesus said the only way to get to the top in my kingdom is to lift others up, is to get, get to the bottom of the pyramid and begin to lift and build others up. That's the only way to get there. So we do, as, as Philippians 2 said, we empty ourselves as Jesus did. We take on the form of a bondservant as he did. And we trust that when we do that, God will exalt us. We do not need to exalt ourselves. God will exalt you. God will reward you. Do you know that your wages don't come from people? If God gave you a job and your job, I mean, if God sent you to a job in the oil field, or God sent you a job at the hospital, or God sent you a, to a job in the restaurant industry, and you got paid a certain amount of money, and then they said, we've got to cut your wages by a ton, I mean, you, you might say that's a no-brainer, I should get out of this job. I mean, I got into this so that I could provide for my family. But the truth is, if God sent you there, it doesn't matter what they're paying you. If God sent you there, he can provide for you. So if you take a job because of the money, you took it for the wrong reason. Does God want you to have a uh, a job that pays? Absolutely. That only makes sense. It says it in the word, doesn't it? And, and you know, I, I, I believe very strongly that there are many in this room that God has promoted, that God has given favor, just as God gave favor to Joseph, just as God gave favor to Daniel. God gave you favor in your job, that, that he'd give you that more excellent spirit that would be a blessing to your employer. And, and, and you might be able to say, you know, my company is blessed just because I'm here. But if they stop paying you altogether and you got, you got a paycheck that had a big fat zero on it, first of all, that'd be a very cruel thing to do, wouldn't it? Here's your paycheck, big zero on it. That's just needlessly cruel. But if it did, if it, or if it got cut in half, we understand that man is not our source. The government's not our source. Jobs aren't our source. People are not our source. The Lord is our source. If he sends me, I'll go. We're part of a kingdom now. There are perks to being part of a kingdom. When you're ambassadors for Christ, he's the one that sends you, he's the one that pays you. In the same breath, you can't say, he's Lord, he's my, I, he's my boss, he's my king, and then, you know, do something totally contrary to what he sent you to do and, and obey somebody else and say, well, you know, in theory, you're Lord. But, but I, 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 I'm more afraid of this person than I am of you. you God can't be, he can't be Lord in theory. He has to be Lord in reality. Jesus said, and I mean, this is quite, a, quite an obvious statement, but Jesus said to the people, he goes, why do you, why do you guys keep calling me the Lord? And he meant it sincerely. Why do you guys keep saying, Lord, Lord, and then you do nothing that I say? Because that's an oxymoron. That doesn't work. You can't say Lord and then go no at the same time. That doesn't make sense. No Lord is, 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 is a phrase that does not make sense when you understand what Lord is. And so as part of this kingdom, I'm not trying to get down in here. I'm trying to encourage you that we have a different, different, uh, whole different set of of values. We have a whole different direction. We have a whole different reason and purpose for existence now. We've been born again. And so when you go to that job, you are not going to that job because it pays you some money and you hate it, but you got to go anyways. You are going to that job as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. So we're going to continue on some thoughts that we we started on Sunday, but we'll we'll head in a bit of a different direction. And um, in Matthew 25, we need to just settle a couple of things before we start reading this. One of the things is that in the Gospels, 
it's very important to understand the context of what Jesus is saying and who he's saying it to, especially in the parables. One of the things that you see a lot throughout the, the whole Bible, you see it throughout the New Testament, is the word uh, judgment or judgment day or judgment seat and all of these things. And uh, it might be a revelation to you to know that there's not just one big judgment, that there are different judgments that, that the Scripture talks about. Scripture talks about the judgment seat of Christ. That's going to be a good day. Now, I know I'm not getting a lot of shouts with that because, you know, we're programmed to flinch when we hear judgment, which makes me think you're all a bunch of criminals. But <laughs> When you're not guilty, when the law is on your side, Judgment's a good day. When someone's ripped you off and you went to court to get your stuff back and you know you're right and the judge knows you're right, judgment day is a happy day for you. Well, because Jesus bore you the wrath of God and the judgment and full penalty, I said full penalty for your sin, judgment day when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ, according to the New Testament, is for one group of people only. Do you know what group that is? The church. That's for the, the ones that have been born again, redeemed. The judgment seat of Christ is not an accounting for sin because Jesus has accounted for your sin. The judgment seat of Christ is where you account for your deeds on the earth. And there will be some crowns handed out. There'll be some rewards handed out. And there'll be some people with some red faces who didn't get anything. Because I don't think there's any participation trophies. This isn't, this isn't modern day Canada. I don't know if you felt that way. I, I felt so, I remember my first year in soccer. First year in soccer, I probably said this already. I'll say it again. First year in soccer, I was, I, we, we lost our tournament and we deserved to lose. We should have tried harder. We should have practiced more. And I sat there on the grass. I thought, well, next year I'm going to get that trophy. All of a sudden, somebody sticks a little trophy in my hand. I said, what's this for? Well, you know, because you participated. So what's the point? We all get trophies here? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I got a trophy for just showing up. That's kind of dumb, you know? <laughs> it doesn't give me anything to strive for for next year. But thank God, we're not, we're not just rewarded for what we did. I mean, we are partaking in the, in the mercy of God. We are partaking in, in, in seeds. We're harvesting seeds we haven't sown. We're drinking from wells we did not dig. We are living in cities we did not build. The Lord has done something for us, and we partake in His sacrifice. Nevertheless, there will be rewards for the faithful at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there's another judgment, the final judgment. It's the last judgment to take place. And this is not a, a very happy day for everybody. The Bible tells us at the final judgment, there will be those cast to the lake of fire. That's not a happy thing. The judgment day that we see in Matthew 25 is neither of these. The judgment day that we see in Matthew 25, you'll notice is different because it's not talking about individuals per se. It's talking about God judging the nations. We don't talk a lot about that because, quite honestly, there's a lot that we don't know about it. But we do know that in Joel chapter 3, he speaks of gathering the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat and, 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 and judging them based on how they reacted to him and how they treated his people. In fact, just for a moment, would you just look at Joel chapter 3 just so I can back that up and we can see, uh, get some context behind what Jesus is about to say. 
It's not my intention tonight to get into um, talking a lot about the end times. That's not what we're talking about tonight. It wouldn't be a bad thing, but that's just not um, where we're going right now. <laughs> because we'd be here for a while, and uh, you've got places to be. I believe God's got something for us tonight that's specific to us tonight. In Joel chapter 3, and let's go ahead and start at verse 1. It says, For behold, in, in those days and at that time, what days is he talking about? Well, you might be familiar with what he said in the chapter before when he talks about the great and notable day of the Lord. Talks about all the blood, fire, vapor of smoke. And you might say, didn't that day already happen? What about when Peter said uh, that uh, the Lord would, you know, when he talked about how Joel said God would pour out his spirit on all mankind, your sons and daughters would prophesy. Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and says, that's today, this is happening. The day of Pentecost was the beginning of all of that. He said, today, this is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. But it says that all of this will happen until the great and notable day of the Lord. I think we can all agree we have not seen the great and notable day of the Lord yet. But it's coming. So there's a time in between. And starting with the day of Pentecost, it started that former and latter rain together where God is pouring out His Spirit on all mankind. The sons and daughters are prophesying. The young men are seeing visions. The old men are dreaming dreams. Thank God. It began and it hasn't ended because the scripture says it won't end until the great and notable day of the Lord. So it didn't just all happen in one day. It says this is, this is that day. And in, in that sense, day is not just a, a, you know, a cycle where the, the, the earth has gone, you know, kind of rotated. And so the sun uh, rose in one place and went down another place. We're talking, about, uh, we're talking about a season. We're talking about an age. And we live in that age right now. The age of the church, you might call it. The age of, of God's spirit resting on, in and on mankind. But later on in chapter 3, he's talking about what will happen on the great and notable day of the Lord. So this is the point. We know the scripture tells us that there is a time. Because right now we've been talking about a kingdom that you can't see, right? An invisible kingdom. That's in us. It's around us, and when you go into the world, we, just as the disciples did, we go and we say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And where the kingdom of God comes near, the sick are healed. When the kingdom of God comes near, demons flee. When the kingdom of God comes near, the, the lepers are cleansed, the blind see, the lame walk. When the kingdom of God has come near, redemption comes. Thank God. But there is a kingdom that's coming. The scripture tells us there's a kingdom that's coming where Jesus will rule on the earth. And he will rule with a rod of iron. And he will, the Bible says, he will judge the nations. And this is what we're talking about here. In Joel chapter 3, in verse 1, says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. And they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, sold a girl for wine that they may drink. When we go further on, let me just skip 
Skip down for a second. Well, no, let's stop there. We, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time in Joel. But let's go back to Matthew chapter 25. So there's, there's, this is the judgment we're talking about. God, Jesus judging the nations. The king judging the nations. He's judging them on behalf of his people. Matthew 25, there are several parables that he talks about. There's a parable of the virgins. There's a parable of the talents. And then there's the, the, the parable of the judgment. Verse 31, it says, But when the Son of Man comes in all his glory. Now you know that Jesus at this point is the one talking, so he's already come. But he has not come in all of his glory. Did you notice it doesn't say when we go to him? It says when he comes. So this is when he's, when he's coming. Now there, there's... Boy, I'm trying to stay away from getting into a bunch of end time stuff. Not because I don't like talking about end time stuff, but I know where I'm supposed to be tonight. But there are, there's more than one uh, time when, when Jesus comes. There's, there's a time when he comes and he's in the clouds and he calls us up and we meet him in the clouds. There's, there's this time when he comes, he comes to the earth to rule and to judge. So when he comes, it says this. When the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and guys... We have not fully seen all that that is, but we will. And the Bible says that when we see him as he is, we will be made like him. Isn't that awesome? It says when he comes in all his glory and all of the angels with him. Boy, do you understand? What, no wonder it calls it a great and notable day of the Lord. You know, our English words have gotten so mixed up. Have you ever thought about the fact that the word awful and the word awesome basically mean the same thing? Full of awe. What about terrible and terrific? Same word. Basically same thing. You know, we, we talk about Ivan the Terrible. That wasn't an insult in his day. Ivan the Terrible just meant great, you know? Big, you know, the guy that, that, that uh, shook the nations. He didn't mean terrible like a bad guy. Terrible was awesome. It was great. And so when we, we talk about the great and notable day of the Lord, it's not, you know, sometimes that great is not just great. It's a swell day. It's a wonderful day. We're talking about great like it might scare you a little bit. Great as in it's going to make your jaw drop. Great as in if you're on the right side, you're happy. If you're on the wrong side, you're not looking forward to this thing. And he shows up with all his glory. That alone would freak a lot of people out. But then he brings all his angels. And they're not those cute little cherry bumps, those fat little babies with the wings. They're the real deal. One of them could wipe out a nation, but they all show up for this day. That's a great and notable day. Notable. You might take a note of that day. That may be a day that makes it into the history books. So great and notable day, Lord. He shows up with all his angels. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. So he's got a throne set up. And all the nations will be gathered before him. Now, if he's talking about what we just read in Joel chapter 3, there's actually a physical place that they'll be gathered. In the valley of decision. In the valley of Jehoshaphat. He'll gather the nations before him. And it says, all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, some would say that the word nations here is also a word that could mean the Gentiles. And, and, and that has some relevance too. We have to understand that there are different judgments here. And so, I want to tell you this because in a moment, he's going to talk about saying, when did you feed me? When did you clothe me? And if you didn't know the context of this, you didn't read the whole chapter, you might think, I passed a homeless guy, didn't give him a sandwich, I'm going to hell. 
should be a wrong thought. Does God want you to feed the homeless guy? Yes, he does. But that's not the defining factor whether you go to heaven or hell. Thank God, or we'd all be going to hell, right? We know that the scripture is very consistent, that it is the, the work of Christ that saved us, not our own work. And as saved, redeemed people, by faith we are saved, not of our own works, that, that man should boast. And yet, as saved people, our faith will always produce work. And as redeemed people, there will be fruit from our life, right? But that's the evidence, not the cause. So here it goes back and he says, he's, get, he's separating, the, sh- the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put them on, the sheep on the right and he put the goats on the left. Nobody wants to be a goat in this story. As much as you might like goats in real life. You don't want to end up on the left hand side here. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You didn't visit me. Then they themselves will answer and they'll say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them. Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's a tough thing to understand. As we said, we've got to understand the difference between the different judgments that are talked about in the Scripture. We have to understand the beginning of the parable. He gathers the nations. He's speaking of uh, an understanding that has been spoken of over and over, not only in the Old Testament, but spoken again in, in the book of Revelation, about a judging of the nations. But there is a principle that we draw from this, whether or not you say, well, well then, it's not, you're saying it's talking about nations. I, I'm exempt from this. There's a principle here, whether or not you're, you're going to be present on that day and punished on that day, I believe that, that, as we said, Jesus has taken your punishment. You won't be cast, if you're born again here, you're not going to be cast into eternal fire, eternal damnation, praise the Lord. But there's a principle here that, that is still relevant, that still is very important, in that Jesus takes it real personally how people, his people, treat his people, how other people treat his people, how his brethren are treated. So personally that he doesn't even say that you treated my brothers this way. He said, that's how you treated me or didn't treat me. That's a huge deal. How we treated the hungry, how we treated the naked, how we treated the poor, how we treated those that were in prison, how we treated those that were sick, how we treated the stranger, how we, how we addressed them. Jesus is saying, you weren't just addressing friends of mine, you were addressing me. 
And one thing is for me, it's like, you know, I, I can get happy about the fact that when I took care of these people, I was taking care of Jesus. But it's a little bit shocking when he says, when you didn't do it, you passed me by. I'd rather him just say, you know, you, you did me a solid, you, you, you treated these people well, I took it like you treated me well, and if he left it at that, we'd all go away going, well, I think I did that once or twice. I think once or twice I, you know, helped somebody out. I had an old jacket I never wear, and I gave it to the Goodwill, so, you know, pretty much then, right, Jesus? I gave you a coat. Hope you liked it. But he doesn't stop there. He says, when you didn't do it, you didn't do it to me. That's a little bit harder to swallow. You know, I'd like to just ask the question. Because all of us here, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe all of us here want to know Jesus more. We want to be closer to him. We want to, be, we want to spend more time near him, in his presence. We know he'll never leave us or forsake us. We know he's present now. We know he's, pre- he's, he's everywhere. And yet we want to draw even closer and know him even more. Have you ever considered, when I say, let's, know, let's get closer to Jesus, we, we usually picture a few things. We, you might picture church. You might picture that time alone at home where it's just you and, and Jesus and, and you're spending time in his presence and his word or worshiping him. Have you ever considered that time with Jesus might be time with somebody that's a little bit smellier than you? Time with somebody that you might not want to spend time with? That that also may be drawing close to Jesus? That's a weird thought. That he says, when you did it to these people, you did it to me. Can we see that Jesus is not just looking for us in our quiet time? That Jesus is not just looking for us in our church time? But Jesus is looking for us in every hour, every day of our life. And he might be looking for us as in, in, the, in the way that we relate to somebody else that's one of his brethren. How we, how we relate to each other. How we relate to the people that we really don't feel deserve our time. That Jesus may say at the end, that was me. And you go, no, that wasn't you because you don't drink whiskey. And I could smell it on that guy's breath. Now, he does say it's his brethren. But you might say, well, that person just never did anything. I mean, they just didn't deserve my time. Or, you know, I'm a busy man. But if we did see Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, we saw him in the parking lot shivering, we'd be knocking each other out trying to be the first one to give him a coat. Wouldn't we? Josh isn't going to get there first. I'm getting there first. I don't care what tricks I have to play. He's going to wear my coat. Now, he may not fit in the coat, but he's going to wear it. There's no way am I letting my Lord and Savior shiver in the parking lot. He says, when you did it to these, you did it to me. In Ephesians, oh, the wonderful book of Ephesians. He sets up this wonderful scene where he speaks in, in chapter 1, begins to tell you what's happened when you were born again. What Jesus did for you and who you are in him, and now you've been seated in heavenly places. Oh, all of, he says, you know, he's, the, the Apostle Paul's prayer was that this church would grasp, that, I mean, just would begin to grasp the great revelation of all that Jesus did and all that he is in them. Then he begins to paint the picture of the church and what the church is. Because remember, he says that he disarmed the rulers in authority, that Jesus kicked the enemy down, put his head, 
his foot on the head, and now all of these powers, all of these principalities, every disease, every demonic power, everything that's got a name is under the feet of Jesus. And then he says he's the head, and we're the body, which means all of those things are under our feet, are under the church as well. He begins to talk about how the church is the body of Christ. It's not a coincidence that he talks about how the church is the body, and then he segues very naturally into how we act as the body, how we shouldn't act, how we should act, but then seamlessly goes into marriage and parenting. And you might think that's a different book. He was just trying to cram a bunch of topics into one letter so that whoever's delivering the letter wouldn't have to make a second trip. That's not true. And whether you've been married a long time, a short time, or not at all, I trust that you've learned by now that real marriage can only happen, can only work. I mean, really work. When you let Jesus be Jesus in you, and when you make him the Lord, not only of your life, but of your marriage. Because he begins to show you the picture of how when that husband treats his wife with love, He's doing the very same thing that Jesus did for us. When that wife relates to her husband, that wife, uh, even, even when they're not getting along, when they, when they submit to one another, because the verse before it talks about marriage says, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. He's talking to the whole church. Everybody submit to one another in the fear of Christ. And he talks about family and all, about all this works, and it works Because we understand now that we've been brought into a body. And there's something he says to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And he talks about how you treat her. And then he says, for no one hates his own body. In other words, if you treat your wife bad, it's just as dumb as as hitting yourself, as, as sticking your finger in a vice grip and just twisting. It's just as dumb as taking a knife to your own body. He says, don't do that to your wife because she's your body, you're one. Now, is it a coincidence that he's talking about the wife and the husband being one right after he's talking about the church and Christ being one body? So how we treat one another, once we've been the body of Christ, have you ever stopped to think that if we're the body of Christ, how we treat one another is how we're treating Jesus? Kind of makes you want to treat people better. How you talk about people. It's the cool thing now. It's the cool thing in the young generation. I'm not sure where I belong on that timeline, but all right. It's a cool thing now. To say, you know, man, I, I love Jesus. I just, I'm not a big fan of the church. Sounds cool, right? Because by saying that, you sound spiritual, but any dumb thing that anybody who's ever called themselves a Christian, you're not responsible for. You know, I, uh, I love Jesus. I'm not a big fan of the church, man. Church is really messed up. I, I, I kind of don't like the church, but I love Jesus. It's a really dumb thing to say. If the church is the bride of Christ, If you came to me and you said, I love the boundaries, but I really don't like your wife. (laughs) I'm telling you, love you, man. Can't stand your wife. Can't stand her. It's going to be hard for us to have a friendly conversation after that. (laughs) You're going to get a lot of pats on the back from me. Like, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. I have issues too. 
It's not the best way to get on my good side. Now, I can't imagine anybody in the world not liking my wife. But this is a hypothetical. Sometimes we get frustrated with people in the church. I understand that. Sometimes people, often people in the church do really stupid things. Sometimes people in authority do bad things, and they say they're representing the church when they do it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's terrible. And I, I, I believe that the Lord has called us to heal those broken hearts, to restore these uh, people who've been hurt. I believe that. And there are many out there, and they deserve compassion, and they deserve understanding. But as believers, I want you to know that how we treat each other is how we're treating Jesus. And he takes it very personally. He takes it as if you're treating him because we are one with him. So when it says submit to one another in the fear of Christ, what it's saying is you're submitting to people that don't deserve to be submitted to. But you're submitting to them because you're submitted to Jesus. Because I'm submitted to Jesus, I will submit to you. That doesn't mean that everybody gets to boss you around all the time. You know what I mean? Like just anybody in the church gets to say, you know what? Go do my walk. Go do my driveway. Yeah, just go. Just go. They don't get to call the shots in your life. That's not what it means. But it does mean, as it says in Philippians, that you are to regard one another as more important than yourself. So have we considered that in order to draw closer to Jesus, in order to honor the Lord, in order to worship our King, because how would we worship the king? When we see the king face to face, how do we worship him? Yeah, you fall on your face. The scripture teaches us that part of worship is bringing gifts, right? We see that in the book of Revelation. Those that have crowns, throw them at the feet of Jesus. They fall on their face. They worship him. They adore him. How would we worship him practically if he lived in Lloyd Minster? We wouldn't just worship him, you know, we wouldn't just worship him by gathering outside his house every night and singing songs. We would do practical things. We would shovel his driveway. I know this sounds really weird, thinking about shoveling Jesus' driveway. <laughs> if Jesus were a man walking among us, if he was in flesh and blood walking among us today, we would do everything we could to, to, to just serve him. As the scripture says, as each one of us has received a unique gift, employ it in serving one another. Because as we serve one another, we are serving Jesus. We're worshiping him by serving one another. People that don't deserve it. People that should have done stuff on their own. People that might not be on the same level as you, but as you do what Jesus did and you serve these people, as Jesus washed the feet of those that should be washing his feet, he demonstrated something for us that we don't serve them because they deserve our service. We serve them because we're serving our king. And that's a powerful thought. Roman Empire, at the time that the book of Ephesians was written, at the time the book of Colossians was written, book of Philemon, uh, one of the things that was all, just all over the place, it was very present, was part of society, was there were a class of people, a slave class of people. Rome was not just built by a powerful military, was not just built by having good uh, uh, naval access. Rome was built on the backs of invading other territories and sending a bunch of people back as slaves. And there was, after a while, there was a whole class of people that were slaves. Now, you, they might not have been treated as badly 
as the slaves. When we think slavery, we often think of the uh, Civil War times in the United States. We think of things like that. They, at, at a certain point, it was just kind of a class in society. This is just who you were born into it after a while. And, and you, you served, I mean, you got fed and you lived in somebody's house and you might be doing better than somebody who's a, a free man. But you don't have control over your life. This is what you do. This is who you are. Well, when the Bible was written, the, or these, some of these letters in the New Testament were, were written, the, this was part of society. It was part of the empire. And a lot of these people in that class got saved. And it was the most liberating thing because when they came to church, those that were not at the same level as, as somebody else, there, there were people that served in the king's court and there were people that were servants at the lowest part of society. And when they came to church, they were equal. That was a revolutionary thing. Huge. I mean, you could not get that anywhere else. Only in the church did you see this. Now, you might ask yourself, why doesn't the New Testament, the New Testament mentions slavery, why doesn't it say, you, you slaves need to, up, you need to revolt, you need to rise up and throw off your shackles? Doesn't God want them free? Well, for the slaves to say, We're not, we don't have to work for you anymore, would have been a revolt in the Roman Empire. It would have been a rebellion. It would have been seen as an attempt to overthrow it. You see what happens to guys like Spartacus. That's not just a movie. He was a real guy. He, was, he and all of his crony buddies who revolted with him got crucified for their efforts. And when Jesus set up the church and when he, when he gave the authority of the church, he told them that their kingdom, his kingdom, was not of this world. He told them when they're oppressed that they were to pray for the one that was oppressing them. He told them when somebody took their when somebody asked for, for one piece of clothing, they were supposed to give them even more. When somebody made them walk this way, they were supposed to walk even further. And he showed them a kingdom that you couldn't grasp, that you couldn't put down. So there were slaves getting saved. What do you tell them? Well, the scripture told them very clearly, in Christ there is no slaves. That may seem like a simple thought to you and me. But that was much bigger than the Emancipation Proclamation to those people. In Christ, can you imagine how freeing that would have been? Somebody tells you, now you think you would have just been socially conditioned to sit on the back row. If, if you even got a seat. You would have come in and thought you had no right to sit next to the, to the rich people. You would have had no right to sit, sit next to the free people. And what they're teaching in the church is, in Christ, there is no slave and there is no free. In Christ, there is no Jew and there's no Gentile. In Christ, there's no barbarian, there's no Scythian, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. That's what you were taught when you came into the church. And so these people that you couldn't associate any other place, you were eating together, you were worshiping together, you were serving each other. This was a radical thought. But now what do you do when you go back to your master? Because you just got told at church that you're not a slave anymore. So why am I doing this work for this man? The, the, the apostles at the time, as they were led by the Spirit of God, knew that, that they were not going to win over these men by revolting. They were going to win them over by being of a different kingdom. And I want you to see what he says. I, I know we've read this before, but let's read it again. Because I think if you can see a slave applying this to their life, then you can sure apply this to your job. You might think that your job is rough, but you're not a slave. At least I hope you're not. Colossians 
It's important to understand that in the first couple of chapters of Colossians, he spent the whole time talking about who you are in Christ, what Christ has done, the incomparable Christ, who we've become as the church, where you find your identity. Because when you know your identity is in him, there's no one that can make you feel less than who God made you to be. When you know that the creator of all the heavens and all the earth has called you his son, has called you his daughter, has called you his friend, who in the world can make you feel small? Who can make you feel like nothing when he put value on you? Right? So at this time, by this point in the letter, they've already got that drilled into them. He says this in verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Now, that, that sounds weird to us because we know that God did not favor slavery. We know that the New Testament is in many ways very anti-slavery. And yet he says, slaves, obey your masters. Why? Well, he goes on to say, not with external service as those who merely please men. Now, if you're a slave, external service is pretty good service. Come on, guys. If you had a slave, now I know that's a disgusting thought, but if you had a slave, you don't like to think about yourself as that kind of person. But if you had a slave, would you care if they, if they, set, if they cooked you the most beautiful meal and there, were no, there was no poison in it, <laughs> it, was, it was a great meal, it was laid up, would you care if they whistled while they did it? No, they just did it. And they smiled when they gave it to you. You don't care if they secretly didn't want to do it. They did their job. That's all I'm asking them to do, do their job. But the scripture goes one step further, one giant step further. And says, don't serve your masters with external service. Don't just serve them outwardly as those who merely please men. Isn't that a powerful thought? You're not pleasing men. Your goal here is not working for people. You might think you're a slave to that guy. You don't work for that guy anymore. Jesus set you free. So you're not here trying to make him happy. It says here, but with sincerity of heart. That means it's pure in heart. Fearing the Lord, capital L. Whatever you do, do your work heartily or with, from the heart. As for the Lord, rather than for men. Do you see with that statement, he sets them free? With that statement, he just liberated them. He says, you don't work for people anymore. You work for Jesus now. Now, that guy may think you're working for him, but you're working for Jesus. And because you're working for Jesus, instead of just doing your job because you have to do it, you do it with joy and from all your heart. You do it as worship. You worship God with your job. He says this, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Praise God. The inheritance is a lot bigger than you and I could ever imagine. But you see what he just said? These are guys that don't get paid. And he just told them they're getting a paycheck. So you're not getting a paycheck from the master. You're getting a paycheck from the big master. You get it, you're getting your wages from him. He'll give you your reward. It says, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he's done. And that without partiality. In other words, if someone mistreats you at your job, they will be handled. You don't have to handle them. You work for the Lord now. Wow. How can you apply this? Do you see what he says? He says, do it as unto the Lord. Do it with all your heart. What I'm trying to say is, we expect that all of our worship takes place 
when we sing songs or when we have private time with God. But I would submit to you that your worship often takes place when you go to your job. When you see that homeless guy on the street, what do you do? When you take care of the stranger, when you feed the person who's hungry, this is worship to God. When I go to my job, and you must say this, I'm a bad example because my boss is obvious. What about your boss? What if he's a total jerk? She's, what if she's a total jerk? I'm going to be even across the board here. What, do you have, what if you have an employer that does not deserve your respect, does not deserve your happiness, does not deserve your best service? We don't work for them. We work for Jesus. Because we work for them, before we work for him, we, our work becomes worship. Did you know you can draw closer to Jesus by working as under the Lord? You can draw closer to Jesus by feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and those in prison. Did you know that you can honor and worship Jesus by heartily doing whatever he sent you to do? This is the kingdom now. We're not doing what we used to do for the same reasons we used to do. We're on this planet for his purpose. And if you have a job, or if you go out into the world and you have a hobby, or you spend time, whatever you're doing in the world, you see it all as worship to God. You see it all as an opportunity to draw near to God. When we treat each other, when we're around his brethren, how do we treat his brethren? Because he's going to ask you, how did you treat me? How did you, how did you receive me? What did you do when I was hungry? And we might say, Lord, I've never seen you hungry. And he said, yes, you have. Now, you get freaked out by that. Or you can get excited by that. You have an opportunity to get to know Jesus better. Not just in your quiet time. Not just in church time. But out there in the rough and cruel world, you can get to know Jesus better. And you can worship him and serve him. And, and in doing so, you will draw closer to him than you ever thought you could. Not only that, but you will be a witness for him in a way that you never could be with your words. The book of Titus talks to slaves as well. He says that when you do this, even when your masters treat you badly, even when your employers treat you badly, but you honor God, you do it not just mere lip service, not just mere external service, but you do it as under the Lord. He says in doing so, you will wear, you will adorn your doctrine. You'll wear what you believe. Wow. We're not talking about those corny Christian t-shirts. Hey, not all Christian t-shirts are corny. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say that because I know some of you have some pretty cool Christian t-shirts. Some of them, can we all admit, secretly, it's just us. Some of them are pretty corny. Come on. But some of them aren't, and they're cool. But wearing your belief is not just wearing a Christian t-shirt. Because you know what? People can ignore those. They, they may not get it. But you want to wear your belief? You serve the Lord in everything. When I mean, even such a small thing as opening the door for an old lady. You say, I mean, I, I know you might say, well, that just sounds like I'm doing it for a heavenly reward. I just want to do it because I'm nice. Well, don't, don't get that way. Don't just say, well, okay, that cha-ching, that's another reward. Cha-ching, cha-ching. <laughs> but do it as worship to God. When you lay down your life, 
for someone else. You're doing it for the Lord. You're worshiping God. When you're, when you're treating your spouse with, with love and honor and respect, you're worshiping the Lord. When you're treating the people in the church who don't deserve to be treated that well, when you're treating them that way, you're honoring the Lord. You're submitting to Christ. When you go to your work and you do the best job, not just outwardly your best job, but on the inside, you refuse to grumble. You refuse to use your mouth to curse. You re- and I'm not talking about swear words. I'm talking about cursing as in speaking negatively when you should be speaking life. When you go to that job and instead of just doing what looks good, instead you heartily do it and you go above and beyond what they'd ever expect of you, you're honoring the king. And this is the way of the kingdom. You'll be rewarded. I'm not saying you do it for the reward, but no, there is a reward. There's nothing wrong with with expecting the reward. In fact, the scripture says, it's actually impossible to please God if you don't believe there is a reward. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the he that believes must believe, he that comes to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if you don't believe that he'll reward you, you can't please him. How we serve. Here's my point that we're, we're going to wrap it up in a nice little bow. <laughs> if we can. Here's the point. The places we expect to find Jesus are not the only places you'll find him. You don't just find him in your quiet time. Thank God for the quiet time. You need to have that time. You don't just find him in the church time, although that is valuable. You'll find him in unexpected places. You'll find him when it comes time to open your home to somebody you don't want to open it to. You'll find it when it comes time to give money to somebody you don't want to give money to. You'll find it when it comes time to go to work when you don't feel like going to work. You'll find it when it comes time to loving on someone that's impossible to love that you let God love through you. You'll find Jesus in those times and you'll get to know a side of him that you don't get to know at other times. You know, Jesus is, is greater than we could even imagine. You know, a lot of times... When we set up a time to be with Jesus, it's on our terms. These are the songs I'm going to sing. This is the time you have. This is how we're going to respond to each other. You've set up the whole thing. But what I want you to be is open to the fact that Jesus might schedule a little meeting with you that you don't expect. You ever thought about that? That you are not the God of his schedule. That you're not like, Jesus, it's our time together. It's 2.30, get into my room, let's go. I'm put on my CD. I worship you, almighty God. It's time to go. All right, we'll be back. 6.30, I'll come back, but I got to go pick up my kids from soccer. And, you know, that's just his time with you. He might just want some time with you at other times. He might schedule a little meeting that you didn't expect. Scripture says, when you entertain angels, or entertain strangers, you might just have been entertaining angels, unaware. Let's expect to find Jesus where he's not usually expected to be found. Go downtown, see if you can find Jesus. Look around the church and see if you can find him. Go to work and find Jesus and work for him. He's the great boss 
who pays the great wage. No matter what you're treated, no matter how you're treated, no matter how you're underappreciated, you will be rewarded by our Father who's in heaven. And there'll be a day when he says to you, thank you for feeding me. Thank you for clothing me. Thank you for giving me a place to stay. Thank you for loving me. And you'll say, when did any of that happen? And they'll say, you didn't expect it. But when you did it to these people, you did it to me. And we'll see Jesus where we didn't expect to find him. And I believe you'll see a different side of Jesus. And I believe you'll grow richer because our goal here is to, yes, glorify God, is to preach the gospel to all nations. But our goal also, when we come together, is that we would all not only draw closer together, we would draw closer to Jesus. My prayer for you every day is that you grow consistently closer to Jesus, that you know him more, you know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what I want for you. And I'm telling you, sometimes the, the only way to know him more is to find him where you didn't expect to find him. And he will be found. And I pray that you seek him where he is to be found. Amen? Would you stand with me? I said this on Sunday, but I'll repeat it for some of you who weren't here. When we read the word of God and we're challenged by something, even when I preach some of this stuff, I'm very challenged by it. Just because you preach something doesn't mean you got it down pat. So when I read it with you, I go, oh boy, Lord help me. In your own strength, all of this that we've ever been told by the Lord is all impossible. But he has done what we couldn't do. And in Christ, we're more than we used to be. And in him, all things are possible. So our response, sometimes our response to something like that is to feel guilty for what we haven't done. But that really doesn't do anybody any good. What you need to do is to right now surrender to the Lord. And if he speaks through his word, if he speaks through a preacher, if he speaks to your heart directly in these times, what I want you to do is to say, yes, Lord. And just, just say, Lord, I receive that. I, have, I agree to that. God, open those doors. Give me those opportunities. You may not know how you're going to do it. You may not know when it's going to happen. But if you will be open to God, he'll, he'll, he'll work out the details. He'll make it happen. Our response to the word of God must be amen. Amen. Okay, I, I agree. I, I submit to that. And when you do that, you let God worry about the how. You let God worry about the, the power it took to get it done. What he wants is for you to say, yes, Lord, yes, you have me. You have my heart, you have my hands, you have my feet, you have me, you have all of me. When you do that, God will work out the little details. God will work out how it's going to happen. God will work out the strength that you need. But he wants a surrendered heart. And if you'll give him that, he'll take you from there. So don't feel condemned tonight for what you haven't done. As Jesus said, repent. In other words, change, turn, and believe the good news. And this is good news. This is what he's asking for you. God is not served by you going home and crying about all the opportunities you've missed. God is served by you saying, yes, Lord. And if, I, if I've ignored you in the past, I freely repent. And I know that I've been forgiven. So Lord, from now on, 
I want to see you where I didn't expect to see you. Lord, you have our hearts. I believe that tonight there's a group of people gathered that genuinely want you. They want more of you. They desire you. I'm amongst a group of people that are not content with a surface relationship with you. But, Lord, as you've been stirring our hearts, you draw us, you're drawing us closer every day. And every day we taste and we see that you are good. And we, as we taste and see that you're good, we want more. We desire more. Father, this is a wonderful thing. Lord, as we have submitted our hearts to you tonight, God, I understand that there are things that have, we've read tonight that seem quite impossible. We don't see how a human could do this. Yet we know that you have and that you are able to do this through us. It is not by our own might nor by our own power, but by your spirit. Because unless the Lord is building the house, everyone that's laboring is laboring in vain. So build your house in us. Make your home in us. Open our eyes. This is my prayer, Lord. Open my eyes to see you where I didn't see you before. Open my eyes to see you in places I didn't expect to find you. That I would worship you, that I would honor you, and that I would serve you with all my heart. Lord, I believe that you are a rewarder of those that seek you. That my reward doesn't come from people. My reward doesn't come from their applause, their acknowledgement, or their money. My reward comes from my king. And it's a reward that moth and rust cannot destroy. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Be blessed.